I'm going to ask... Um, I'm going to ask my mom to come up and introduce our speakers for this morning and just share a little about um, the pastors, wonderful pastors, Dan and Joy. Thank you, mom. Well, it's a real um, honor and a privilege for me to be able to do this. Um, this couple, some of you have met and some of you haven't, but they are the most awesome, amazing, wonderful couple. And I know they don't like praise and honor and things like that, but it is biblical to honor people. It is, you know. And so we want to honor you today. And we want to say we are just going to be so blessed to hear. They, um, hopefully they're going to share their story, a bit of their story with you, because I know quite a few of you have not heard it. But for 18 years, they have spent their life, um, not all, whole 18 years, but a lot of that time um, in Haiti. And I remember the first time I went to Haiti, I remember saying to Jimmy, How, what do you think if I went to Haiti? And I said, do you think I'd be okay? I mean, you know, I hear it's, it's kind of, it's hard going. And I said, nah, I don't think you'd be okay. I'm like, I really don't. Emotionally, I don't think you'd cope. And this, right. <laughs> Okay, I'm going. And, <laughs> and I went there, and it got the biggest shock of my life, I have to say. I mean, honestly, I did. I did. But it was the most amazing time also. When you meet Pastor Dan and Joy, there is just a radiance that comes from them. There's a love. There's a compassion. There's a joy. We had the privilege to meet their two, uh, two of their daughters um, there when Alison and I were there. And we, we had the most amazing time. We would play cards with them in the evening. And... To be in a place like Haiti and have joy, honestly, it has to be God that gives you that strength because you're just surrounded with everyday problems. And I remember saying to Pastor Dan, how do you cope? He'd wake up in the morning and there'd be a queue of people waiting for him um, just for whether it was a drink or, or bread or, oh, just amazing. But and we would play with these uh, cars with these two girls and we would just have such fun and joy. And we just want to say to you, Pastor Dan, you're here today and we're going to be blessed. But we want you to take a blessing back with you. We know how much you give out. We know how much what you go through. And we just want to say we want to bless you. We want to say to you to be encouraged, to be strengthened, to carry on what you're doing because the work that you're doing is amazing. He's an amazing influencer around the world not just, you know, in Haiti, but around the world with the work that he does. And he's going to share some of that and Pastor um, Joy as well. So let's welcome them with the vine, with everything we've got. Thank you. Well, thank you. It's really, really great to be here. Um, you know, it seems like at our age, we are gathering or we have several places we feel home. That's such a huge thing, home. What is it? And, and uh, I don't know what you have here, but each time we come, we feel home. So thank you for welcoming us back again. Um, we started this journey when we were really, really young, before we had any of these gray hairs. And um, God has been so faithful. He has been so good. I thought about some of your songs today that talked about fear. And, and it's only God that can remove the fear from a person's life and give them holy boldness, uh, give them courage to do some things. And, and uh, I am so grateful for the God who's the miracle worker who does remove fear and other things that chain our lives. 
Because of you, I'm going to tell you a story about Dr. Junior. Every year, the medical or the government of Haiti assigns young men and women who finish their medical education to clinics and hospitals around the country. And a few years ago, a couple years ago, the government assigned Dr. Junior to a small, tiny clinic on the other side of our island of Laguanav. One of our doctors throughout that year met Dr. Junior, and he was so impressed by his work ethic and by his Christian faith. That's a pretty unusual combination in Haiti. And, and he kept saying, oh, I, Dr. Junior is just such an amazing man. Well, at the end of that public service year, the tiny clinic had not the resources to hire Dr. Junior full time. And our doctor said, can we do it? Is there any way possible we can hire Dr. Junior? Well, we didn't have the funds, but God supplied a grant. And Dr. Junior is working in our hospital, the Laguanov Hospital, this morning. His work ethic and his Christian faith are making a difference in that hospital. And he can do it because you um, helped give us a brand new beautiful hospital. It's, it's really difficult, and one of Dan and my assignments for this season of our life is to um, travel the United States as much as we're able to meet with major donors and some churches, because the hospital, um, while it's beautiful and amazing, and you did so much to, to make it happen, um, the everyday cost, operational costs are a burden that can't, all, can't be funded in Haiti, and so that's part of the job that we're doing. And, um, Do doctors like Dr. Junior are very happy to work every day, their shifts, for about 700 pounds a month. And so that's what Dan and I are doing um, in, in these months that we're traveling through the U.S. is just finding people. Uh, would you pray with us that as we travel to, to churches and ma major donors in the U.S. that people will, will understand the need will feel burdened by that need and will open their wallets, their purses, um, and, and give so that the hospital in Haiti continue to do the amazing work it does for the, as the only hospital on that small island. Thank you for what you did to help us kickstart this and we can employ uh, men and women like Dr. Junior. We've never come to the vine and not left with a blessing. Thank you so much. And a sense of connection and warm fellowship here and friendship. Many of you have been to our side of the world and have experienced uh, the, the, not only the tragedy that is Haiti, but the blessing of pushing back against that poverty and against that darkness as team members in God's uh, team called to make a difference, and so I thank you for that. The first time I ever met Elma, she was with uh, Dr. Allison in the back of a Land Rover, going over what we call roads in Haiti. I don't think you would call them roads here. And uh, it was a six-hour trip from a very remote place, and uh, we were in the back. Uh, one of those long, boxy Land Rovers, not the posh kind they sell here, but the kind that really, uh, the tough, uh, ones, what do they call them? Something tractors or something. In London, they call them the, uh, the people drive them around as if they're going to ever be off a, a paved road. But um, one of those long, narrow ones. 
And uh, the point is you never want to get behind that rear axle if you're sitting in the back. It's a bad place to be. And I watched these two ladies uh, getting bounced around and thrashed around in the back of that vehicle. And after an hour or so, they said, let's sing. And so for the rest of the several hours trip, rattling around the back like stones in a tin, they sang. And I said to myself, here's a couple of really tough ladies, some people who are really committed to this. And I'll never forget my first impression of you too, is how committed you were that in that kind of circumstance you could sing. And I thought to myself, these are people who would make great partners, and that's been true through the years. When Jesus first came away from his time away, his time of reflection and temptation in the wilderness, one of the first encounters he had was in church. He went to the synagogue, and in recognition of his growing stature as a prophet of God, or as someone who was considered to be a cleric or a teacher, they handed him the scroll, which was very symbolic, and he was to search the place that he wanted to read and teach on in that day. They did church a little differently. It was just men, and uh, they didn't have the formal order of worship. They probably, they may have done some music. We're not told a lot about that, but they did do a, a very specific teaching every time they gathered, and Jesus opened the scroll, and he read, and I'm reading from Luke chapter 4, but you could also find this in Isaiah because he literally opened the scroll and read words from Isaiah. I'm sorry. I flipped the page. And he declared that he had come to proclaim good news to the poor. And that he had come to declare freedom for those who are oppressed. And he declared from the words of Isaiah his own personal mission statement. Can I tell you that as a leader in a mission organization, not everyone always agrees with everyone else. Is that shocking? Lately, I've been hearing things like this. Jesus did not come to minister. He did not come to be a glorified social worker. He came to preach the gospel. I've heard people say things like this. We do ministries of compassion to enhance our platform for evangelism. We're not called to do social work. We're called to make disciples. And while I understand the sentiments that are being expressed, and because I personally in, in my lifetime have seen many organizations kind of get lost in their mission, I understand what some people are trying to say. In our organization, we work in 104 countries around the world, and it's in my area, and particularly in the country of Haiti, where we have the largest team of missionaries and the largest scope of ministries of compassion and development. And so a lot of times in our organization, I'm the lightning rod for that criticism. 
I don't always take it real well. Is that a confession I need to make? A little defensive at times. Some of you have heard this rant before, so I ask you just to forgive me and to pray that God will uh, teach you something new today by the Holy Spirit. I can confess to you that I've done some soul searching because I don't want to be off the track. I don't want to be off target. I want every ounce of my energy, every moment of my life to be meaningful and centered in God's heart and God's purpose. And so I take those kinds of things seriously and I had a time of personal reflection and I'm still in it, but I think I have a little more clarity than I had before. But I began to say to God, these people who are saying these things are good people. And we use metrics to measure, we use means to measure our success in our ministry and we talk about number of people at events. We talk about dollars received and spent. We talk about baptisms and those are ministry metrics that are useful and necessary, I think. And I began to seek God's face. I I was saying to him, I need to understand your heart. I need this to understand your heart for the poor and your heart, your passion for, for justice because I see a theme throughout the scripture, the theme of shalom. And shalom, we translate it peace when it appears in the scriptures, but it's way more than that. In the biblical understanding of shalom, it's setting right the things that are not right. It's restoration in the truly godlike sense of restoration. But the very practical questions of how can we do that and should we even be trying? What is our role as a church? What is our role every day as people of God as, as we leave the team meeting, because that's what this is. This isn't church, this is the team meeting. And go out to be the church, to do the work of the kingdom. What does that mean? And I began to say to God, I need some insight, I need something new, I need something different. I need to understand your heart on this issue. I don't want to be just fighting polemic battles because my pride's been injured or I think people are are stepping in on my territory. I want to know what you feel about this. Well, I had no idea. God has this interesting way of answering those prayers completely out of the blue in a way that you would never anticipate. I was at a public service. I was at a a ceremony and a choir was scheduled to sing and uh, I love choir music when I was younger before I wrecked my voice preaching, Pastor Jimmy. Um, I used to enjoy singing in a, in a group and, and at one time had a bass voice that uh, all the music teachers wanted to anchor the end of the, the bass line with. And so I always, I can still enjoy it when I hear it. My noises now are more like crows. But I was excited to hear this choir. I knew about this choir. They had a great reputation and very disciplined and very musically, technically perfect. And uh, instead of the normal kind of choir, it was a small group that stood up and they sang a, an a cappella number. And um, it was beautiful. 
and it was technically perfect, but it wasn't the music that wrecked my world that day. It was the very simple lyrics of the song. If, the, if, you ha if you're able back there in the sound booth, were you able to get my sound bite ready to go? Let's listen to a minute or two of it. It may not have the same impact on you, but I, I think it'll help set the mood to help you understand what happened to me that day. Can you hear the prayer of the children on bended knee in the shadow of an unknown room? that God was answering my prayer that day and let me tell you what was going through my ADD brain at this point you see the song goes on and, and expands the picture a little more but the songwriter Kurt Bester is painting a very powerful picture and all of us may have a little slightly different image of it in our minds but it's a clear picture of little children in the dark places around the world, having no control over their own lives and the circumstances that surround them. He uses the phrase, in an unknown room, someplace seen only by God, little children. In the course of my responsibilities, I've stood in some of the dark places of the world. It's hard to imagine a darker place than the city Soleil slum in the capital city of Haiti in Port-au-Prince. And I've seen some of those children who literally run out of that hellish environment into the sanctuary of our church and our school. And it's heartbreaking at the end of the day to see some of them gathered around the gate as it's time for them to leave and they don't want to go. Because for a few hours they have 
had water to drink and food to eat, and they have been safe inside high concrete walls. And as that song was playing, and as I began to, my brain began to spin, call this practical theology, if you will, but my mind began to pose some questions. Does God know? First question is, is this a reality? I don't think you have to labor too long to believe that desperate children, hunger, thirst, pain, danger, fear, are praying those prayers. Anybody doubt that that's a reality? So then the question is, does God know about this? Well, we've declared him already this morning to be the sovereign God. Sovereign means he does know. He's the all-knowing, all-seeing God. And if he is the God we declare him to be, then he knows. Does he care? We've proclaimed him this morning in our worship to be the God of love. And if he is a God of love, then he has to care, doesn't he? When those children pray. So the next logical question is, does he respond? Doesn't he have to respond? If he knows and cares, doesn't he have to respond to the pleas of the innocent children of the world? So we say yes, he has to, he does. So here's the tough question. How does he respond? In our world, what is God's response to the prayers of the children? And I don't mean to focus totally on children. The prayers of those who are broken and lost. How does he respond to those prayers? Answer makes me uncomfortable. I've preached this message a number of times and when I get to this place, up until this time, people are with me and they're encouraging me and you know, they're nodding and every once in a while in certain churches I hear an amen out loud. But sometimes they stop right here. That's okay. Sometimes that means the Holy Spirit's doing his job, the job he, only he can do. And that is to apply something to the hearts of every individual. The undeniable answer to the question is God has one way of replying to the prayers of the children and that is he mobilizes and sends his people that in this generation we call the church. And so my question for me and for you is how are we doing? If you need a reason why a church like the Vine has gathered money, sometimes from people who didn't have it to give, and people have donated days and weeks of their lives to go to places like Haiti and other places where you as a church are involved in ministry, I think the reason is here. See, God does call us to respond. We are his agents to respond to the cries and to the prayers and to the brokenhearted 
pleas of people around the world. It is our job. And it's not conditional on whether or not they ever respond to God's call. We're not expected to sort that out ahead of time. We're supposed to be God's hands and his feet, his voice, his ears, his heart. In all the places where he calls us, individually, even corporately, we can't address every need there is in the world. But if every person who called themselves a follower of Christ would approach their life with the attitude that I am God's hands and I am God's feet and I will be his kingdom bringer in every place he sends me and every place he calls me to serve. Our world would be a different place. Is that hard to believe? The other day I was in the home of Andy Hawthorne. Some of you know Andy as the, the leader, the executive director of the Message Trust in Manchester. I didn't realize he had some Salvation Army background, that he has family that have that history, but I was uh, touched to see in his foyer, when you walk into his, the front room of his house, hanging front and center, is a plaque, and it's a quote from William Booth, who more than a hundred years ago declared this. While women weep, as they do now, I will fight while children go hungry as they do now, I will fight. While men go to prison, as they do now, in and out, in and out, I will fight. While there is a drunkard left, not politically correct language now, while there is a poor lost girl on the streets, while there remains one dark soul, Without the light of God, I will fight. In these days of political correctness and refinement of the church and its message, maybe it would be good for us to be a little more militant in the way that we think. This is a call to war but not the kind of carnal war with the carnal weapons that are used around us, but rather the single weapon for which Satan has no antidote or no imitation. And that is the pure love of God exhibited, expressed in works of love and compassion. The answer to me was clear. I was not on the wrong track. God was calling me to give in every way that I could, to tune my ear to hear uh, the prayers of the children and the broken people that surrounded me. God doesn't call everybody to go to foreign fields. 
It's crazy how he does that sometimes. It's interesting. My wife says not to share this, so she's going to be nervous. I can't explain to you why that when I see, when I'm in the Caribbean region of the world, I have this overwhelming love and passion and I want to talk to people. I want to go out in the street. I want to be integrated and totally absorbed. And I go to other places in the world and I'm kind of a tourist, kind of an observer. I don't feel the same kind of passion for them. So I do believe that God calls people to a specific area of ministry and he gives them a supernatural gift of an outpouring of love for those particular people. But God doesn't call all of, all of us to do that. He doesn't call us to leave our home and go to another place. But he does call all of us to bring the kingdom of God here where we are. So that means in Dunfermline, God considers you to be his ambassadors. And I want to be very practical. I know I leak and have a tendency to tell stories that make other people leak. But I want this to be intensely practical. What does it mean to be God's ambassador here in this place and in this town? And that's not a question that I can completely answer here in this place. That's actually rather a question for you and your family to talk about and for you and your God to talk about. But I'm confident that if you'll pray this prayer with me, God will answer it for you in the way that only the Holy Spirit can do. And that is take something and seal it personally to you. Let's pray together. Father, I believe that there are many hearts in this place today who have listened to this message and listened to this challenge and the response has been, God, I want to be in a new way. I want to be your ambassador. I want to be sensitive to your voice. I want to be an answer to the prayers of the children and to the broken people who surround me in this town. And Father, I'm willing, and so I ask that you would give me new ears to hear, prayers that I haven't heard before. You'll give me new eyes to see brokenness that I haven't seen before. You'll stir my heart to a new level of love and compassion that I've never felt before. And you'll help us individually and corporately to make a difference in this town more than we have ever done. Take us to another level. And Father, help us not to tie our services of compassion, our stand for social justice, our welcome to immigrants, our response to poverty and the effects of it. Help us not to tie in our mind these expressions of our faith and our compassion to expectations of response from those people. But teach us to release that service to you and allow you to do your supernatural work in their lives. Father, you have visited us here today. It was evident from the very beginning in the worship. And as even before that, as the people gathered and engaged in genuine love and community on the way into the service, Father, we have confidence that you'll continue to do your work and that you will seal to the hearts of individuals the truth of your love for us and your expectation for us to serve the world around us. And Father, we are eternally grateful to you 
for all that you've done. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.